Solidarity number 699, 14th of February 2024, page 2. Make unions commit labour to green and renewable energy. Labour leader Keir Starmer's 8th February U10 on Labour's 28 billion flagship green investment pledge has been justified on the grounds that it is incompatible with servicing the national debt. He wants to be seen to be scrabbling around after every last penny, lest the Tories label him imprudent. The national debt, with interest payments around £100 billion a year, is a genuine problem. Much of the debt is held outside the UK, so couldn't be quelled even by full public ownership of high finance in the UK, and even a workers' government might want to retain links with the international credit system. Labour's environmental policy was always very inadequate and limited, but £28 billion was still an improvement on the Tories' current £10 billion green investment fund. The Starmer U-turn cuts £13 billion from the policy, leaving just £5 billion in new money. £13 billion is in the realms of a rounding error for the UK government with its over £1 trillion budget. In any case, even if you do not take the energy industry into public ownership, thus securing its super profits and winning the capacity to plan democratically, even if you do not reduce the debt interest payments by public ownership of UK high finance as a government could, it is entirely possible to raise £13 billion by even modest increased taxes on the rich and big business. Just a mild wealth tax and other tweaks would raise £37 billion. So why drop the pledge? It is difficult to believe that flip-flopping on popular commitments will attract votes on a general election year. Who is attracted to weak and vacillating leaders? More likely it seems that the purpose of the U-turn is to signal to big business and to vaguely perceived by but feared socially conservative voters that Starmer is absolutely committed to honouring the blank checks Johnson's government wrote uh, during the pandemic. As if to hammer this message home, Labour has not ditched the entire green policy. The original green investment plan combines state subsidies for private landlords and capitalists for green initiatives with an ambitious home insulation scheme that would benefit working class people with droughty homes and high energy bills, as well as reducing emissions. Starmer's U-turn cuts the home insulation programme, leaving only socialism for the rich, state subsidies. The thin layer of Blairites, pink Thatcherites, who currently occupy the Labour's leader's office, may genuinely believe there is no alternative to socialism for the rich. But their policy is not popular within the broader Labour movement. Starmer's U-turn has shown he will bend under pressure. The task ahead is to organise sufficient working class pressure to make Labour service workers' interests with the same energy and conviction as the Tories and the Starmer leadership serve the capitalist class. Why do fiscal rules squeeze so tight? Before paying the Tory debt, it's worth asking how it was accrued and who should foot the bill. 
The debt ballooned during 2020 to 2023, with the government borrowing an additional £400 billion while the country moved in and out of lockdowns. Total debt is now around £2.2 trillion. Tory Britain was both one of the most profligate profligate (laughs) spenders during the pandemic and achieved some of the worst outcomes. Despite the spending splurge, there was surprisingly little spent on effective infection control. The Tories' top priority was to protect the income and class privilege of the rich. £80 billion was given directly to business owners in cheap loans. A further £70 billion was spent in furlough payments so that the bosses were freed from having to pay their workers' wages. Over £12 billion was frittered away on dodgy PPE contracts. £29.5 billion given to hyper-exploitative firms to run an ineffective track and trace system. Quantitative easing. (coughs) The Bank of England printed £895 billion in quantitative easing, cash going to ease financial institutions from which much went directly into the pockets of the idle rich. During the first year of the pandemic, the UK's 177 billionaires added a record of £106 billion to their fortunes as the economy was contracted by about 10%. As the states at home rich prospered on taxpayers' money, around 12 million key workers were denied sick pay and so could not isolate. Care homes and hospitals became major reservoirs of infection. Buildings lacking adequate ventilation or air filtration and workers were refused effective PPE. The boss class's indifferent attitude to key worker safety was a huge contributing factor to the UK's worst woeful pandemic response. The Tories' socialism for the rich approach was particularly egregious and ineffective, but it was far from unusual. Between March 2020 and May 2021, central banks injected £9 trillion into their economies. Much of this was rooted via financial markets directly into bank accounts of the super-rich. During this time, the world's 2,700 billionaires enjoyed their biggest ever surge in wealth. Over £5 trillion entered their coffers uh, as world output contracted by 4.3%. Social Provision and Market Rules Socialism versus Capitalism by Martin Thomas Critical to the replacement of fossil fuel energy by low emissions, uh, electricity, generation, renewables and nuclear is the expansion of the electricity grid. Since Thatcher's privatisation, the grid is run by private companies with the prices they can charge for transmission regulated by an official body, Ofgem. Ofgem is now considered the next round, is now considering the next round of price controls and say that it will use the company's investability as a criterion. It will aim to ensure that the companies not only cover their costs, not only make tidy profits, but make profits 
lush and reliable enough that their share prices keep high and they are attractive to finances looking for lucrative outlets. The result? High prices for households and the necessary expansion of the grid slowed and made dependence on whether Ofgem is generous enough to coax the companies into it. Even under capitalism, it is possible to expand such utilities as the grid under public ownership without coaxing private profiteers. This is how an electricity grid was first established in the UK under a Tory-dominated national government in the late 1930s. Capital. Since the onset of neoliberalism in the late 1970s and early 1980s, capitalist governments have thought differently. Capitalist firms are larger and more able to operate at such large scale. Governments want to draw in footloose capital from across the world, and utilities are a good offer, since they have stable markets and prospects. The results with electricity, as with water, is that provision for the future comes second to the investors' scramble to extract as much loot as they can in the relatively short term. The same principle is illustrated, oddly, by the fact that Russia's GDP expected growth for 2024 is higher than that for the UK and many West European countries. GDP growth there does not mean welfare or provision for the future, mostly it means military effort. Russia can afford Putin's war as the UK could afford an electricity grid adequate to reduce emissions through an overriding interest prevailing over ordinary market rules. As the liberal economist John Maynard Keynes put it in 1942, quotes, anything we can actually do, uh, that is, for which the resources are available, we can afford. End quotes. He warned against the, quotes, the vile doctrine that every enterprise must justify itself in pounds, shillings, and pence of cash income. End quotes. Socialism means overcoming the, that vile doctrine, not to prosecute war, but to win social, social provision and social foresight. Page 3. Full Ceasefire, Peace to States by Ira Berkovic. At the time of writing, negotiations between Israel and Hamas, uh, mediated by a variety of third parties towards a new ceasefire and hostage exchange agreement, were reported to be continuing despite Israel's rejection of Hamas's latest proposal for the terms of such an agreement. By the time solidarity reaches readers, a ceasefire may have been pushed far into the future by uh, an Israeli assault on Rafab, Rafah. The Hamas proposal rejected by Israel was for a four-and-a-half-month ceasefire in which all surviving Israeli hostages held by Hamas would be released in stages in exchange for the release of 1,500 Palestinians from Israeli jails. Under the proposal, negotiations towards a permanent ceasefire would continue during the truce, with Israel withdrawing its troops from Gaza. The USA 
Israel's most important international ally is pressing strongly for an agreement and has rebuked Israel for its planned Rafah offensive, which the US says would be a disaster. Domestic dissent is also growing. New opinion polling from the Israeli Democracy Institute shows that about 71% of uh, Israelis want elections to take place earlier than the mandatory November 2026 date. Of those, there is a split between a slight majority which wants elections to take place only after the end of the current war and a large minority which wants elections within three months. A majority of Palestinian citizens of Israel questioned as part of the polling favour elections as soon as possible. 71% of respondents identifying themselves as left-wing and 42% of those calling themselves centrists were for immediate elections. The line that there is no partner for peace on the Palestinian side has taken its toll. 51% of Israelis polls oppose the establishment of a Palestinian state as part of a post-war political settlement, with 36% supporting it and the rest unsure. But only a political framework which guarantees both people's an equal right to self-determination, including the right to national statehood, can provide the basis for a long-term peace. Only a demonstrated will by Israel, which holds all the cards at present thanks to its military strength to seek such a political settlement, can create the conditions for the recomposition of forces among the Palestinians seeking two states. There is growing dissent in Israel's far-right. Demonstrations by far-right political activists aligned with the settler movement to block the transport of aid into Gaza have grown in size and number. Ironically, Netanyahu's far-right allies may bring down his government by withdrawing from the coalition in protest at a ceasefire agreement and what they see as too high a level of aid. An increase in aid is urgently needed, given the mounting health crisis in Gaza, which could ultimately kill more than the bombs and the bullets. Many Gazans are at risk of starvation and or death from preventable diseases, rapidly spreading due to the devastation of healthcare and sanitation infrastructure. Even if their pressure fails to restrain Israel from an assault on Rafah, International governments must step up their own aid provision efforts, including by restoring and increasing funding to UNRWA, the only on-the-ground agency with anything like the capacity to receive and distribute aid supplies. The aid uh, operation must also include massive infrastructure rebuilding projects, including providing safe, livable, temporary housing for internal refugees whilst their towns and cities are rebuilt. Reconstruction efforts must be speeding, speeded to allow displaced Gazans to return to their homes. In the wider region, conflict between the US and paramilitary proxies and allies of Iran continues. A recent US drone strike in Baghdad kills Abu Bakr al-Sadi, a leader of the Iran-backed 
um, Kotaib Hezbollah militia, which has been attacking U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria. But the militia, armies and states are not the only forces in the region. Increasing anti-war agitation in Israel is coming nearer to being able to constrain the Netanyahu regime and struggles by workers, women and youth in Iran could threaten Iran's rulers. On 10th of February, the 49th anniversary of the 1979 Islamic counter-revolution that installed the current state, protesters chanted death to the dictator and down with the Islamic Republic. Internationally, socialist and labour movement activists must maintain pressure on on our own governments to press Israel to pull back, including by withdrawing military aid and to massively increase humanitarian aids to Gaza. Beyond this, we must continue to carry out our duty of solidarity to left-wing and trade union forces throughout the region, fighting for freedom, democracy and equality, and in particular to the Jewish-Arab social movement standing together within Israel. UK Friends of Standing Together Standing Together, Israel's fastest-growing grassroots movement over recent years, unites Jews and Palestinians within Israel to fight for an equal and just society, for peace and against the occupation. UKFOST promotes their work in the UK for peace, justice and equality for Israel's and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, including an equal right to self-determination for the full equality of Palestinian citizens of Israel. Page 4. What do they think of Hamas? Antidoto by Jim Denham. Morning Star reader Roger Seifert, in a letter published on 30th October last year, complains that the paper, quotes, has failed despite massive coverage to explain Palestinian politics, the absence of any discussion of what and who Hamas is, what it stands for and how it represents Palestinian interests, is a trend that has been evident in your reporting for several years. End quotes. Uh, Seffert went on, quotes, <coughs> Hamas' basic ideology now consists of the denial of rights to women, gay citizens, those of different ethnicities and religions, to trade unionists and socialists. We cannot support such organisations. End quotes. He was right to be concerned. In an editorial on 11th of October, the MS had noticeably refused to condemn the Hamas program of a few days before, comparing it to anti-colonial struggles like those of the Mau Mau in Kenya and the FLN in Algeria, and ignoring the obvious point that brutal methods were within national liberation struggles with broadly democratic aims, unlike the clerical fascists of Hamas. Seifert was also right to note the lack of any clear analysis of what Hamas is and what its practice and stated ideology amounts to. But on 6th of December, the paper made it clear what it thought Hamas is not. (coughs) An editorial headed, No, Hamas are not Nazis. The paper argued that while the Nazis sought imperial domination of Europe in its entirety, Hamas just seeks the liberation of Palestine. The liberation which Hamas seeks is not liberal, but the subjection, expulsion or slaughter of all the Zionists 
i.e. Israeli Jews. The MS argument ignores Hamas' origins in the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization that had well-documented and financial ideological links to Nazi Germany. It would exempt all and any clerical fascist movements because, to be sure, none have had all the drive and intensity and strength of the Nazis. The same editorial also contains the claims that, um, quotes, despite its religious rhetoric, Hamas does not demand the death or expulsion of all Jewish people from Israel or Palestine, and it certainly does not aim at the murder of any Jews elsewhere, end quotes. Whoever wrote that has clearly not read Hamas's founding charter. Uncritical. Matters seem to have reached ahead with the publication of 8th January of an uncritical view of a book of Hamas propaganda, Hamas from resistance regime, including claims that Hamas, Hamas guarantees women's rights, calls for equal rights for all Palestinians, no matter what their faith or politics, was elected in, quotes, in the most democratic and free elections many observers had ever monitored, end quotes, and that they make their decisions by means of democratic centralism. This nonsense was too much for Roger Seifert, who, together with Steve Silver and Mary Davis, wrote a letter to the paper published on 12th of January. The letter is highly critical not only of the book review, but also of the overall thrust of the paper's coverage of Hamas and the war in Gaza. Quotes, We despaired at the uncritical tone of the review and the failure to mention the evidence about Hamas currently. It remains a religious far-right group, determined to impose its own version of the Koran on the Palestinians with or without their consent. Hamas denies the right of what it calls the Israeli entity to exist. In the words of former Hamas leader Khaled Mashal, Quotes, we shall not wave an inch of Palestinian home soil no matter what the recent pressures are and no matter how long the occupation, end quotes. The letter concludes, quotes, Hamas opposes everything socialists stand for, yet the paper provided an uncritical offering of this type. It is shameful and is given, gives succour to those who use the conflict to support the racial hatred in the form of anti-Semitism, end quotes. I suspect the only reason that the letter was even published was because all three of the signatories are long-standing members and or supporters of the Communist Party of Britain. I say good luck to them, but I think they may be wasting their time. The Morning Star and the CPB have officially labelled Hamas as anti-imperialist, and the 7th October pogrom is to be, to quote the editorial of 11th of October, the violence of the oppressed, and therefore justified. <laughs> Corrections. Posey Parker. As originally posted, our article on David Miller in Solidarity 698 said, quote, Posey Parker, who has organised street protests alongside neo-Nazis, in quotes, the reports which we linked to didn't say, and we didn't, it intend to imply that Parker organised that protest with neo-Nazis 
all invited them to it, only that neo-Nazis appeared alongside Parker's group at it. 18th of March 2023. Parker, from her other name, Kelly J. Keane, emailed us threatening legal action and attaching an apology she secured from the Independent. We reaffirmed what the Independent wrote. Parker did not stage a Nazi salute, did not invite the neo-Nazis, did not endorse them. We refer leaders, readers <laughs> to the following articles reporting on the 18th of March 2023, um, as well as the one we originally linked to uh, details on the letter. Someday this world's gonna end. Eric Lee. One of the great spe- speeches in Francis Ford's Coppola's a couple now is made by uh, Robert Duval playing a somewhat insane U.S. Army colonel in Vietnam. Um, after delivering his oft-quoted quotes, I love the smell of Napalm in the morning, in quote speech, he tells the young Martin Sheen that sadly, someday this war is going to end. Someday the war in Gaza is going to end, and not a moment too soon. According to current rumours coming out of Israel, Netanyahu is telling his top officers that everything needs to be wrapped up before the start of Ramadan, 10th of March. In other words, regardless of what actually happens on the grounds in southern Gaza, the Israelis will be declaring victory sometime in March. They could have done so at any time in the last four months, saving countless thousands of lives of Palestinians and Israelis and bringing home the Israeli hostages alive. That they have delayed for so long is unforgivable. And when the war is over, we know a few things will almost certainly happen. In Gaza, a much weakened Hamas will continue to rule. Even if Israel succeeds in killing or capturing every single Hamas fighter, they have done almost nothing to destroy the organization's political leadership abroad. Hamas has clearly won the propaganda war, portraying the people of Gaza as innocent victims of an Israeli thirst for blood. Many Gazans will see the Hamas leaders as defiant heroes. Some, probably not many, will see Hamas the way Germans saw the Nazi leadership after the Second World War as those responsible for the catastrophe. <clears throat> At the moment, it seems like the Palestinian Authority, based in the West Bank, has no credibility in Gaza. Maybe the Hamas military leadership in Gaza who reportedly have been the most enthusiastic about accepting the proposed ceasefire deal, will have learnt something from the disaster they unleashed on 7th of October. Maybe they will think twice about doing that again. In Israel, we can expect something different. The latest public opinion polls show that Netanyahu's coalition government will be defeated in the next elections, and not just defeated, but overwhelmingly rejected by Israeli voters. Likud, Netanyahu's party, may receive fewer than 20 seats in the 120 seats Knesset. A government at the of the centre-left, headed by Benny Gantz, is more than likely. The left party 
of that coalition will be very small, as it looks like the Labour Party will not receive enough votes to enter the Neset for the first time in its history. Meretz looks likely to win enough votes, barely, to get in. While it won't be the government's we'd like to see, it will infinitely—it will be infinitely superior to the current one. The chastened, bruised Hamas still running Gaza and an Israeli government run by Gantz, who was happy to sit in coalition with Netanyahu, is not the best outcome, but it provides everyone with some breathing space and a time to heal. For the Palestinians, it's time to think seriously about their future, about what they need to do to get the idea of two-state solution back on track. It's almost impossible to imagine that happening without a real opposition to Hamas emerging. As for the Israelis, the surviving hostages will come home and Netanyahu will likely wind up in a prison cell. But they too need to learn about learn some lessons from the, this war. Among them, something which the Israeli left in peace camp has been saying for decades, there is no military solution to the conflict. As we can already see how this is going to turn out, at least in the short run, it's time to tell the Israeli and Palestinian leaderships that further fighting is pointless. They must end the war now, end it, and then let's move on to the next chapter. Page 5 Union sets plan on sexual harassment. Women's fight back by an FBU member. On 7th of February, the Fire Brigade Union, FBU, published the results of an independent inquiry which it commissioned into sexual harassment in the Union, alongside an initial action plan signed off by the Executive Council. The headline finding is shocking. 30% of FBU women members have experienced sexual harassment by fellow members in a union context. The inquiry surveyed all women and BME FBU members, as well as a random selection of white men. The work was supported by the FBU's National Women's Committee. The report was commissioned following a series of scandals in other unions. In 2020, KC uh, Karen Mulligan found that, quotes, bullying, misogyny, cronyism and sexual harassment are endemic within the GMB, end quotes. In 2022, Casey Helena Kennedy found that the leadership of the TSSA had, quotes, enabled sexist behaviours through willful blindness, power hoarding and power practices, end quotes. That the investigation which instigated proactively by the union's leadership is a good thing. As Matt Rack said in the union's video update, it was clear that the FBU is not immune. Misogyny is a problem across the movement and it is well known uh, it is a well known persistent issue in the fire and rescue service. The London Fire Brigade's independent culture review published in 2022, gave a sobering insight into that. The scale of the problem in the Union also suggests it has been something of an open secret and a serious attempt to tackle misogyny and sexual harassment is long overdue. The report's findings include 
30% of women in the union had experienced sexual harassment in an FBU context compared to 5% of men. 30% of perpetrators were officials of some kind, 13.4% branch level and 60.3% brigades area level. 15% of women had experienced sexual harassment in the past year. In 93% of cases, the perpetrator of sexual harassment was a man. Only 1 in 10 of women who had experienced sexual harassment reported it to the union, and many felt that felt there would be negative consequences for them if they did. The most common environment for sexual harassment to take place is socials following FBU events, and almost 1 in 10 women respondents somewhat or strongly agreed that they are less willing to participate in FBU um, activities because of fears of sexual harassment. Fewer than one in a hundred of male respondents agreed with the same statement. Unlike the uh, inquiries into GMB and TSSA, the inquiry did not find any allegations of sexual misconduct against any national level officials. The Union Council, the Executive Council, <laughs> had agreed an initial action plan based on the recommendations of the inquiry, including compulsory education for all officials from brigade level upwards. Further actions will be decided by, by the Union's Equality Subcommittee. This report is a positive start. It is important now that the Union does not let the issue drop off the agenda. Since the Me Too movement kicked off in 2017, the internal culture in our unions has had greater scrutiny, but so far the change has been surface level at best. We know from experience that pressure will come from more conservative elements in the union to minimise the issue, to dismiss misogyny as a banter or claim it is distracting from real industrial issues. But a truly democratic union will ensure participation from all its members. It's down to the members committed to an equal, democratic and effective union, as well as the union's leadership, to see that real strides forward are made to tackle misogyny in the FBU. Activist Agenda Labour Left Internationalists, LLI, has circulated suggestions for submissions for the big Labour Left Group Momentum Convention on 10th of March. The convention is online only and limited to debating the next top campaign, some strategic priorities and constitutional amendments. LLI proposes in-person conferences able to vote on policy, tax the rich to rebuild NHS as campaign, reverse Brexit and housing as strategic priorities. Any momentum member can make submissions, but they must be by 18th of February. Free Fairs London campaign launches Environment by Owen Flood On uh, Saturday the 10th of February, the Stop Silvertown uh, Tunnel Coalition met to discuss a campaign for free public transport in London, 
Over 50 people attended the meeting from a range of different campaigning organisations and unions. The provisional name of Free Fairs London was decided for the campaign and a steering committee was elected to carry out jobs between general meetings. Campaign ideas and actions were discussed, including a presence at the next London Assembly on the 7th of March. There was a consensus to make more links with transport unions in order to grow the campaign and make links with the wider labour movement. The Stop Silvertown Coalition is a campaigning group set up to oppose the proposed Silvertown Tunnel, a road construction project in South London that has been opposed by Newham Council and Greenwich Council. The campaign for free public transport comes as a positive alternative to building new road infrastructure in the city. In order to seriously tackle air pollution and the climate crisis, we need free public transport, not road tunnels. Currently, public transport in London is free for those over 66. Campaigning has also won free bus and tram travel for under-18s. The London Free Fairs campaign takes inspiration from successful and partially successful campaigns and policies for free public transport in parts of Europe. Cities in Germany, France and Estonia have trialled free public transport or severely reduced fares, reducing fares. When free public transport was introduced in the French city of Dunkirk in 2018, 28%, 48% of new public transport users reported that they regularly used it instead of cars. In Luxembourg, public transport was made free in March 2020. Since then, car use has fallen by 11% and public transport use has increased by 25%. While free public transport on its own is not enough to eliminate or severely reduce car use, if it is combined with more funding for increased routes and frequency, it can do a lot to curb it. And we should support free public transport regardless as a right to be guaranteed for all. The demand for free public transport goes further than what any major British political party or union proposes. Labour under Corbyn and the Greens in both their manifestos have committed to affordable transport but do not go as far as pledging free public transport. The same is true of the main transport unions RMT and Unite. At the meeting, no specific proposal on how to fund free public transport was decided on. However, a number of ideas were raised, including uh, payroll tax, land value capture, revenue raised from commercial or luxury property, road charging, increased fuel duty, a moratorium of further road building, and channeling that money to public transport and wealth taxes, as well as further measures to curb tax evasion. In general, we would advocate funding measures of that channel more from the rich than the poor in society. Road charging, for example, would be more of a burden on many uh, not very well off. We encourage activists and readers to get involved in the campaign. The next meeting is still to be announced. Please watch this space as well as the Stop Silver Town Tunnel websites for updates. No Run for Mayor by Martin Thomas. 
Contrary to media speculation, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to run for London Mayor. The poll is on 2nd of May. Sadiq Khan is the Labour candidate. The possibility, however, remains open of the local Labour Party to find the Labour leadership and selecting Corbyn, who is still a Labour member, though denied the Labour whip in Parliament as its candidate in Islington North in the coming parliamentary election. Solidarity supported the wide protest against Islington North being denied a democratic choice, but has argued against courting exclusion by a local independence contest. The results would not be a building block for a new and better party, but a further episode in the dispersion of the Corbyn-era Labour left. A hero. Uh, page, page six. A hero. Better, a democratic leader. Book review by a rail worker. At the end of June uh, 2022, I was jubilant, having just taken part in three days of national strike as part of the RMT Union's campaign to defend jobs, pay and conditions on train operating companies, TOCs, and Network Rail, NR. It was a similar feeling for many of the strikers, and we weren't alone. We had taken heart from the disruption we had caused and the passing public's positive response and a far larger group of people had learnt about our dispute by gleefully watching hostile interviews being taken down by our General Secretary, G.S. Mike McLynch. Gregor Gall, who published a biography of Bob Crow in 2017, describes and analyses all that in his new book, McLynch, The Making of the Working Class Hero. The book is both biographic and sociological, a story of how Lynch became GS uh, intertwined with a discussion of working class, power, material interests and ideology. As Gaul notes, quotes, it was a particular peculiarity of the period in Britain that Lynch was first and most frequently called a working class hero when a small handful of television interviews in Late uh, June 2020, with foundation of this designation. End quotes. It was also a measure of how the labour movement's aspirations and expectations have diminished. Those three days of action and the inter- initial interviews turned out to be the high, high points of a campaign that ended in November 2023 when RMT members in train operating companies following network rail workers accepted below inflation pay deals with more attacks to come. It was clear by the start of 2023 that the leadership wanted out of the dispute. Eventually, the feeling permeated the membership and reduced the chance of being able to escalate the action. None of the deals put to the members was ever recommended by the leadership, cancelling strikes at short notice and at best doing them as a stop-start effort, eroded confidence. Maybe um, against such an intransigent opponent as this government, and with reduced impact after network rails settled in March 2023, there was nothing else we could have done. Lynch could, quotes, 
have made moves to win support to establish a strike fund to sustain prolonged strike action, end quotes, and tried harder to get coordinated action with other unions, as Gall proposes. Another suggestion that TOC and NR workers could have levied to finance industrial action by signalers, the RMG group of rail workers were most uh, with most power is worth considering. <coughs> workers on the rail and beyond need to evaluate the strike wave. Gall's book will be a useful aid for that. It will be lost on Lynch, who refused to be interviewed for the book, whilst accepting many other such requests, both before and after. Indeed, in its efforts to mute the book's message, the union has issued a cease and desist request to the publishers to stop them contacting RMT members with a discount officer. offer. Lynch himself has said, quotes, if I get the chance, I like to read a few books, end quotes, but obviously not this one. And this leads to Gould's consideration of what he calls his subjects, anti-intellectual workerism. I find it hard to believe that Lynch, who has a degree in history from LSEs, is anti-intellectual. It is wholly possible that he puts on an act to maintain his claim that, um, quotes, what I am is the mainstream of where our members are, end quotes. More likely, it is a lazy shorthand for dismissing his critics on the left. Dismiss. In, in attempting to dismiss his critics' relevance and the need for new ideas, he says, quotes, working class people educate each other all of the time, end quotes. How effective it is to rely on that spontaneous education when so many working class people voted for the Tories against Corbyn's Labour Party in 2019. It is difficult from Gould's description to tell where Lynch stands. He wants and can see the benefits of a Labour government. Quotes, it is in the class interests of our people, even if they just turn around some of the most egregious things that the Tories are doing. End quotes. That seems reasonable, though with a distinct lack of ambition. Then Lynch says he wouldn't join the party, reminding me of the people who won't join a union but will happily take the benefits it achieves. Summing up the dispute, Gaul says that the quotes, government was engaged in a major reforming confrontation, end quotes, defining that as quotes, a stage managed conflict which seeks to radically reset the balance of power in industrial relations in favour of management, end quotes. He argues in these situations that industrial power needed to be augmented by, quotes, political power through a political party, adding that the RMT had not resolved the issue of how to exercise political influence on the scale that was required. Ultimately, the this explains why the 2022-23 disputes with the network rail, TOCs and the Conservative government could not be won on sufficiently favourable terms for the RMC, end quotes. In that section, he clearly asks us to consider that a better outcome might have been obtained if the RMC had been affiliated to Labour, but then uses the unhelpful phrase, political chenet 
say pas, to describe what that uh, benefit might have been. Clearly the RMT could have used the structures of the Labour Party and sought an alliance with other striking affiliated unions and the hundreds of thousands of sympathetic Labour Party and union members to add weight to our efforts to get a better deal, and not just for RMT members, or at best to fatally damage the Tories. On the political on other political matters, Gaul gets it right with his negative characterization of Lexit, social democratic reformism and the bureaucratic operation of the Union, all of which Lynch supports. In terms of his overall effect during the strike wave, Gaul says, quote, Some may have been inspired into activity and greater activity by Lynch, but it is likely that many more will have continued to look skywards for representation and prosecution of their views and interests by others, end quotes. Gull counters with a line from the Redskins, quotes, Take no hero, heroes, only inspiration, end quotes. Another lyric from one of Lynch's favourite bands, the Three Johns, encapsulated our thinking better. Don't put your faith in him above. In Beirut, Beirut or Liverpool, Berlin or Tehran, if you're asking not, if you're not asking for the whole wild world, what are you asking for? Page 7. A Half Story of the Miners' Strike, TV review by John Cunningham. Some aspects of the Channel 4 documentary on the 1984-85 miners' strike, The Battle for Britain, are worth paying attention to. It includes interviews with former striking miners who give straightforward, honest and hard-hitting accounts of what happens to them, in particular their appalling treatment at the hands of the police. The contrast is stark with the accounts from miners who work through the strike. They seem blissfully unaware of the border issues of the strike. They offer a fixation with the idea of uh, intimidation as driving the strike, but little in the way of evidence is offered. A couple of policemen are interviewed, but as often in these instances there is little that lifts their contributions beyond the level of platitudinous drivel. The official political input is probably main, may, propose, is provided mainly by the intensely boring Robin Butler, CBO, KCB, JCB, KG, a stuffy career civil servant who was Thatcher's private secretary during the strike. As befits a former head boy at Harrow, he is a master of the cliché, but says nothing of substance. The episode, the episode centred around Orgreave, showed where the real intimidation lay. The police engineered a trap for the strikers and arrested 95 miners who were then charged with riot, which potentially carries a long prison sentence. The court cases that followed in Sheffield clearly demonstrated that the police arrests and supposed evidence was utterly fabric utter fabrications. All the 95 were acquitted and the charges withdrawn. Channel 4 chose not to mention the case in 2012, where an ex-minor was charged with an actual crime and found guilty. Neil Gretrex 
stole funds from a retired miner's home, was found guilty and received a prison sentence. Greatrex worked throughout the strike and was a leading figure in the establishment of the pathetic travesty of a trade union, the so-called UDM, Union of Democratic Miners. The programme admits what's happened to the working miners who continued in the industry when the strike was over. Did their loyalty to Margaret Thatcher save their jobs? Roland Taylor, one of the working miners who features prominently in the programme, describes how after the strike he was invited via an anonymous phone call to a drink in London where Margaret Thatcher turned up. Sherry. Well, I hope he enjoyed his glass of sherry because his pit, uh, Shirebrook in North Derbyshire, which features prominently in the programme, was closed in 1994. The loyalty of the UDM was repaid by the closure of all Nottinghamshire mines. The last pit in Nottinghamshire to close was Thoresby in July 2015. Other pits, such as Shiro's Shiro's closed as early as 1990. The miners who worked through the strike in Nottinghamshire and elsewhere ended up no different from those who stayed loyal to the union. Their reward for betraying their union and their community was to be flushed down the toilet along with everybody else. Much heralded and timed for the 40th anniversary of the most important strike in British history, the Channel 4 series promises much but delivers little. Much of the treatment is superficial. There's almost no attempt at contextualization and the historical backgrounds is paltry. For example, why did the Nottinghamshire coalfield provide so resistant, prove so resistant to joining the strike, though about 20% of the 32,000 workforce did join and there were women's support groups and other supporters from the area? The only answer given by the document documentary and repeated ad nauseum is that intimidation explains the success of the strike elsewhere. In fact, in the initial weeks of the strike, striking miners went into Nottingham to meet miners going to work and talk to them, with the result that many turned back. Support for the strike was clearly growing. The Thatcher government was rattled. It responded by mobilising thousands of police from up and down the country and eventually sealed off the Nottinghamshire coalfield. There are many, many omissions from the documentary. Ian McGregor, the manager of the National Coal Board, formerly of the British Steel Corporation, imported by Thatcher from the USA, gets no mention. Cortonwood Colliery in South Yorkshire, whose threatened closure was the initial spark for the strike, is ignored. Thatcher's whole closure programme gets a brief mention, but there are no details and the NUM's response is omitted. There is no mention of the murky connections of Roger Windsor, and a National Union of Mine Workers executive officer. After many charges and countercharges, former MI5 chief Stella Remington chose her words carefully. Quotes, it would be correct to say that he, Roger Windsor, was never an agent in any sense of the words that you can possibly imagine and that MI5 did not 
run agency in the National Union of Mine Workers. That's not to say that the police or special branch might not have been doing some of those things, end quotes. This dish of cold leftovers is all the more surprising because during the strike, Channel 4, along with some foreign news services, was one of the few media outlets trusted by the striking miners. At the so-called Battle of Orgreave, Channel 4's footage showed clearly that the pickets began throwing stones, etc. at the police in response to being charged down by mounted police. The BBC reversed this footage and made it appear that the mounted police charge was in response to stone-throwing, which could hardly be described as intense. Many years later, the BBC apologised, claiming a mistake in the editing process. In the battle for Britain, Channel 4, despite having got it right in 1984, as itself was versed the footage. The Strange Case of David Hart The Channel 4 documentary spends a a large part of the third episode recounting the story or myth of David Hart, who, it is claimed by some, played a major role in advising Margaret Thatcher on the strike and engineering the downfall of the NUM. Hart is one of those individuals, much loved by the media, who are frequently portrayed as a cross between James Bond, the Scarlet Pimpernel, and a character from a John Buchan novel. A product of Eton, (coughs) Hart never had a proper job, apparently being satisfied with a playboy lifestyle and property investments while carousing with the rich and powerful and dreaming up various schemes, some of which, such as engineering a, a group in Equatorial Guinea suggests a fantasist of the first stripe. A warrant was issued for his arrest, but nothing came of this. Hart did advise Thatcher about the strike and did travel around Nottinghamshire in a chauffeur-driven Mercedes, according to some reports, drumming up support for a breakaway union from the NUM and handing out tosh to those he deemed worthy. To what extent he was a key player in the strike, as suggested by Channel 4, is open to question. Even many Tories were distrustful of him. He was once refused a ticket to the Tory party annual conference, as was Roy Link, the ultra-dim president of the UDM. Hart died in 2011. Good riddance. Page 8 and 9. Gramsci's Laboratory Subaltern Social Groups by Paul Hampton Despite his fame, a considerable part of the writings of Antonio Gramsci, a leader of the Italian Communist Party in its revolutionary period of the early 1920s, who then wrote prison notebooks in Mussolini's jails, is not available in English. Joseph Buttigieg's English translation of Prison Notebooks 1-8 to was published in three volumes by Columbia University Press in 1992, 1996 and 2007. But Buttigieg died in 2019 and it is not clear where, when the remaining notebooks may be full, fully translated. However, another volume from the notebooks has been published in English, Antonio Gramsci, Subaltern 
social groups, a critical edition of Prison Notebooks 25. It adds significantly to our knowledge of this remarkable classical Marxist. The book, edited and translated by Buttigieg and Marcus Green, provides a valuable overview of the publication of Gramsci's notes, Prison Notebooks, new and revised translations, an insight into the later appropriation of Gramsci by the Subaltern Studies strands of post-colonial theory. Gramsci Philology Gramsci was a founder of the Italian Communist Party, PCI, in 1921. After Mussolini's fascist seized power, Gramsci led the PSI and was elected to Parliament in 1924. He was arrested in November 1926 and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released shortly before his death on 27th of April 1937. Gramsci's original manuscripts consist of 33 notebooks, amounting to 2,848 pages, four notebooks of translations and language exercises, eight miscellaneous notebooks consisting mostly of first drafts and notes, four mixed notebooks partitioned into distinct sanctions, and 17 monothematic notebooks, or what he described as special notebooks, which includes second drafts and notes organised according to specific topics. Gramsci devoted a special notebook to the topic of subaltern social groups, inscribing on the margins of history, the history of subaltern social groups, on the translation on the title page. This is the notebook newly translated into English. The first Italian editions of Gramsci's notes took the form of six thematically organised volumes published by Enildo between 1948 and 1951. Edited by Felice Platone under direct supervision of the Stalinist apparatchik Palmiro Togliati, they presented Gramsci as the Stalinized PCI wanted. Platone assembled six of the eight notes from the special notebooks on subaltern social groups, along with 20 notes on a range of topics from nine other notebooks, and placed them together in the appendix of the volume titled To Risorgimente. Green argues this meant, quotes, Grebsky's treatments of subaltern groups had secondary importance, was exclusively connected with the Italian Risorgimento, the 19th century movements for a unified Italian state, and was not necessarily a recurring theme, theme and independent category of analysis. End quotes. This Platon edition served as the primary source for initial English translations of Gramsci's prison notebooks. A slim volume, the Modern Prince and Other Writings, edited by Louise Marx, 1957, put out the publishers of the Communist Party USA, was the first anthology of Gramsci's writings to appear in English. Marx translates the Italian subalterno as subordinate instead of subaltern, obscuring Gramsci's category. The most widely known anthology of prisons, Gramsci's prison writings in English appeared in 1971 as Selections from the Prison Notebooks, 
edited and translated by Quintin Hore and Jeffrey Noel Smith, again published by the CP's international publisher, Lawrence and Wishart, though Hall was, clear, was close to Trotskyism. This text also quotes, uh, broadly speaking, followed the lines laid down in Platon's Enyodu edition, end quotes. In 1995, Derek Botham Bootham published further sex selections from the prison notebooks. In 1975, Gramsci's complete prison notebooks appeared in print for the first time in Italian. The Quaderni del uh, Cacere was edited by Valentino uh, Geratana in URD, 1975, in coordination with the Gramsci Institute. Geratana <coughs> reproduced Gramsci's eight miscell- miscellaneous, four mixed and 17 thematic special notebooks in the chronological order of their composition, as well as providing detailed descriptions of Gramsci's four translation notebooks. Geratana numbered the notebooks in sequential order from 1 to 29. The Geratana edition, for the first time, provided a complete reproduction of the special notebook on the margins of history, the history of subaltern social groups, Notebook 25, in his chronological sequencing. However, Gramsci's treatments of subaltern social groups and classes largely went unnoticed. The thematic index of the Geritana edition did not include entries for subaltern social groups or subaltern classes. Geritana's critical edition has become the authoritative text. It served as the model for critical editions of the prison notebooks in French, German and Spanish, as well as Brutigaig's three volumes. Subaltern Social Groups Gramsci started Notebook 25 in July or August 1934 and composed the last notes in the first month of 1935. This new completed translation of Notebook 25 shows the text itself is quite limited. It consists of just 15 pages in the book, eight paragraphs on the various topics, um, one David Lazaretti, two methodological criteria, three Adriana Tilga homophobia, Faber, four some general notes on the historical developments of subaltern social groups in the Middle Ages and in Rome, five methodological criteria, Six, the slaves in Rome. Seven, indirect sources, utopias and so-called philosophical novels. And eight, scientism and residues of late romanticism. In two, Gramsci translates, quotes, subaltern groups are always subject to the initiatives of the dominant groups, even when they rebel and rise up. Only permanent victory breaks their subordination, but not immediately. In fact, even when they are triumphant, subaltern groups are only in an anxious defensive state. In quotes. Gramsci uses used the term subaltern classes, um, that is, classi subalterne, for the first time in Notebook 3, uh, 
14, likely written in June 1930. The phrase appeared elsewhere in Notebook 3 and later in Notebook 4, written from June 1930 to May 1933. He referred to slaves, plebeians, common people, the proto-proletariat of the medieval communes, peasants and modern industrial proletariat as a subaltern as subaltern classes. After June 1930, the phrase subaltern classes and later subaltern social groups became a permanent element of Gramsci's lexicon, overlapping with other lines of inquiry. However, Gramsci never provided a precise definition of subaltern, subaltern social groups or subaltern classes in the prison notebooks. Green argues that Gramsci did not conceive them as a single or homogenous entity, which is why he consistently refers to them in the plural. Gramsci used the word class in earlier text and replaced it with social group in text after the mid-1932. Gerotana argues that this change in terminology was likely due to Gramsci's quotes, increased vigilance against prison surveillance, end quotes, and not the, quotes, replacement of the Marxist concept of class struggle with the sociological methodology of the dynamics of social groups, end quotes. Green points out that Gramsci clearly did not disguise all references to class in the prison notebooks after mid-1932. In some instances, the variance of subaltern classes and subaltern social groups appears as overlapping categories. Green believes the change in terminology pointed to a greater emphasis on the heterogeneous nature of uh, subalterns, stressing the problematic issue of the categories of people, classes and social groups. Page 9. Notebook 25 in context. The book also contains extracts from earlier notebooks where Gramsci refers to subaltern classes, providing more than 100 pages of translations in the same formats as their Buttigieg volumes. There are far too many insights for, to quote in a short review. Read the book to get the full flavour. Two themes, political parties and methodology, suggest Gramsci was still working with the early Comintern paradigm when he was writing about subaltern social groups. On political parties, Gramsci observed in Notebook 3, uh, number 48, that, quotes, pure spontaneity does not exist in history. He argued the elements of Conscious leadership in the most spontaneous of movements cannot be ascertained simply because they have left no verifiable documents. One may say that the element of spontaneity is therefore characteristic of the history of subaltern classes. End quotes. In Notebook 9, number 68, Gramsci defines bureaucratic centralism as quotes, indicative of the formation of a small privileged group that seeks to perpetuate its privileges by controlling and even stifling the emergence of oppositional forces at the base, even if those forces have the same interests as the dominant group. 
Somewhat cryptically, he stated, democratic centralism is an elastic form that lends itself to many incarnations, end quotes. In Notebook 10, number 41, Gramsci contrasted faulty conceptions of ideology, treating ideas as, quotes, mere illusions, a deception they are subject to, end quotes. For Marxism, quotes, ideologies are anything but arbitrary. They are real historical facts that one must fight against and unmask in instruments of domination, end quotes. In in Notebook 10, number 12, uh, Gramsci stated, quotes, Parties are the elaborators of the new integral and all-encompassing intellectual corpse. <coughs> that is, the parties are the crucibles of the unification of theory and practice, understood as a real historical process. He argued that there is also a seg- segments of the mass included, including the subaltern mass, that is in a position of leadership and responsibility, and the philosophy of that segment always precedes the philosophy of the whole, not only as a theoretical anticipation, but as an actual necessity. End quotes. In Notebook 15, number 66, Gramsci observed that, quotes, it is possible to have an old generation with antiquated ideas alongside a generation with infantile ideas, a situation, on the other hand, in which the intermediate historical link, that is, the generation that could have educated the young, is missing, end quotes. The concept of science. In Notebook 11, number 15, Gramsci wrote a lengthy exposition on the concept of science. He observed how apparently, quotes, the natural sciences enable us to foresee the evolution of natural processes and uh, end quotes and hence methodology has only been thought thought to be scientific only if and only so far as it abstracts per, it abstractly permits us to foresee the future of society instead gramsci argued quotes in reality the only thing one can foresee scientifically is the struggle, but not its concrete moments, which are necessarily the results of opposing forces in continuous movement that can never be reduced to fixed quantities. Gramsci is highly critical of Bukharin's book Historical Materialism, 1921, which he referred to as the popular manual. Quotes, it is, however, the concept of science itself as it appears in the popular manual, that must be critically destroyed. It is taken wholesale from the natural sciences, as if these were science to his court, or science par excellence, as had been determined by positivism. End quotes. Gramsci bluntly defines someone who is not a scientist. Quotes, if he appears to have a poor uh, mastery of his particular criteria, if he lacks a thorough understanding of the concepts he is using, if he is poorly informed about and has a weak understanding of the work that has already been done on the problems he is addressing, if he is not very cautious in his assertions, if he does not proceed in the required manner but is arbitrary and illogical, 
if instead of taking into account the gaps that exist in the current state of knowledge, he silently ignores them and contents himself with purely verbal connections or solutions, rather than declaring that he had arrived at provisional positions that can be resumed, developed, etc. Gramsci crowns Notebook 11, uh, number 15, with a passage similar to others in earlier notebooks, which must be assimilated by every Marxist. Quotes, a broader methodological, methodological criterion, namely, it is not very scientific, or it is simply not very serious to choose from among one's adversaries the most stupid and mediocre ones, or to choose the uh, least essential and the most occasional of their opinions, and then presume to have destroyed the enemy completely just because one has destroyed a secondary and incidental opinion of his, or to presume to have destroyed an ideology or a doctrine with a demonstration of the theoretical deficiencies of its third and fourth-rate proponents. Furthermore, one must be uh, fair to one's enemies, in the sense that one must make an effort to understand what they really meant to say, and not dwell maliciously on the superficial immediate meanings of their expressions. It has to be so if the proposed goal is to raise the tone and intellectual level of one's uh, followers, as opposed to the immediate goal of using every means possible to create a uh, desert around oneself. The approach that should be adopted is this. One's followers has to be able to discuss and uphold his position when debating with capable and intelligent adversaries, and not just with unsophisticated and unprepared people who are convinced by authority and by emotion. The possibility of error must be declared and justified without thereby compromising one's position. End quotes. Subaltern studies. One reason why the Gramsci volume is likely to obtain a wide global readership is the use made of his term subaltern social groups by modern post-colonial theorists. Ranajit Guha and the group of historians who founded the South Asian Subaltern Studies Collective are largely responsible for introducing themes related to the Gramskian concept into current um, intellectual discussions. In the first issue of Subaltern Studies, published in 1982, Buha credited Gramsci and his notes on subaltern groups as one of the major influences in the founding of the research project. The aim of the collective was to challenge elitist historiography and to um, illuminate aspects of subaltern history that had been ignored and neglected in the fields of South Asian studies. Between 1982 and 2005, the Subaltern Studies Collective published 12 volumes of Subaltern Studies. There is no space to assess these theories here. Vivek Chabert's book, Postcolonial Theory in the Spectre of Capital, Capital 2013, makes a sharp Marxist critique of the evolution of Subaltern Studies away from Enlightenment, um, Universalism, Class Analysis and Marxism. The publication of Notebook 25 and other relevant passages from his notebook 
indicate that Gramsci himself remains preoccupied with Marxist themes, particularly those of developing a working-class ideological worldview and building a Marxist political party committed to working-class socialism. From these texts, post-colonial reading that seek, seek to replace working-class agency in the struggle for socialism will find no sustenance. Similarly, those who seek to detach Gramsci from his Marxist politics also find no succour. In fact, Gramsci gives relentless attention to the importance of the Marxist working-class political party and the need to fight the ideological front of the class struggle. Pages 10 and 11. The Narodnik Labour um, Movement. The Road to Bolshevism by Sean McGammer. Uh, third in a series around the anniversary of the death of Vladimir Ulyanov-Lenin in 1924. Uh, starting with the timeline. 1861. Abolition of serfdom. Alexander Herzen from exile calls on intellectuals to go to the people. First major populist Narodnik group, Semlier Velvia, Land and Freedom, 1861 to 64. <coughs> 1872 to 73, the Tchaikovists the first popular workers group in Petersburg. 1874 to 5, first and second wave of young radicals going to the people. 1875, Union of Workers of Southern Russia formed. 1876, uh, Second Semler Group, Bakuninists, aimed to spark immediate mass rebellions for socialism. 1878 to 80, North Russian Workers Union formed. 1879, Semler Volya splits, majority called Narodnaya Volya, People's Will, goes for terrorism assassination of top officials, with first aim of winning a constitution. Minority, Chornal, Peridel, Black Redistribution, Apple's old approach. 1879-81, to 81, a second workers' union of South Russia formed, again crushed. <coughs> 1881, Narodnia, all people kill the Tsar, they are hanged. Intense repression crushes Marodnia Polya. April 1881, first of a wave of pogroms. pogroms. 1883, Plekhanov, Rods, and other former leaders of Chonia Peridel, now in exile in Switzerland, form group for the emancipation of labour with a new perspective. An article. <coughs> Franco Venturi, in his book, Roots of Revolution quotes the police reports on the state of things in the St. Petersburg working class after the impact of the populists, Narodniks. Quotes, the gross vulgar methods employed by factory employers are becoming intolerable to the workers. They have obviously realised that a factory is not conceivable without their labour. Without workers, the employers can do nothing. A realisation of this has now given rise to the spirit of solidarity among the workers, which has so often been noted these days. Two or three years ago, the employers' affairs were no better than they are 
at present. Then too, it often happened that the workers did not receive their wages on time. Yet then everything went smoothly. The cunning employer flattered his workers and said good-naturedly that he could not pay them at the right time, and they withdrew in silence and the next day turned up quite normally for work. But now, as soon as even the most popular employer holds back wages for only three or four days, the crowd begins to murmur and curse and strikes often break out. Even in the workshops where money for wages can never be lacking, as this is a state industry, the spirit of opposition to be found among the workmen has appeared on a scale utterly unknown before. There have been cases of work stopping because the men were not satisfied with an insufficient wage or because their um, uh, or because of oppression exercised by the management of the workshops. All this taken as a whole clearly betrays the influence of the propagandists who have been able to sow among the workers hatred for their employers and the belief that the forces of labour are being exploited. End quotes. The first. It was not um, the first. Uh, it, it was not in St. Petersburg, but in Odessa, in the in the south, on the Black Sea, that the first distinct working class organization in the Russian Empire emerged. Thirty thousand of Odessa's two hundred thousand population were proletarians. The story began with the work of a populist, E. Zaslevsky, which lasted nine months in 1875 before he was arrested. He was a noble, but not rich. In 1872-73, he had anticipated the mass movements of 1874 from the towns to the peasants and had gone out to the people on his own. He came back disabused and convinced that the people to work with were the urban proletariat. He moved in the opposite direction to the majority of the populists at that time. Zaslevsky was a believer in Lavrov's policy of long-term work through propaganda and not the Bakuninists one of trying to foment immediate revolt. He circulated Lavrov's emigre paper for Perad forward. In 1873, he became a teacher in the existing small group of populists who worked around the Berlino Vendrick factory, which had about 500 workers. He tried to teach political economy and working class history, but abandoned that for simple, simply reading aloud Chernyshka's didactic novel, What is to be Done? Vladimir Ilinov Lenin would later appropriate the title for his 1902 pamphlet. The group printed and distributed illegal leaflets and helped workers form a library and start a communal bath. 350 workers in the factory set up a credit union. The activity of, of organising the workers in this mutual aid bank eventually led to the creation of a workers' organisation of 200 members. They had a structured leadership, an entrance fee, a subscription, and regular meetings. This was the nucleus of the Union of Workers of Southern Russia, as it was called Southern Russia, then being taken to include Ukraine. It spread to other factories across Odessa. What was the Union of Workers of Southern Russia? 
a trade union, a political party, a mutual aid society, it was all of them. Venturi uh, said, quotes, It emphasised its distinctive working-class nature. This led to moves to exclude non-workers, and soon there was internal war between Bakuninists and others that led to a split, but the organisation survived, end quotes. What did it do? It made propaganda, held classes, fought the working class struggle on wages and conditions. It supported strikes, for example, at the Bellino Vendrick factory and at the Giola Blanchard factory. It published a manifesto on these struggles that was distributed in the towns along the Black Sea coast. Virtually everything the union did was, of course, still illegal. In late 1875, it was virtually destroyed by police action. Some of its organisers got 10 years hard labour. Saslavsky got 10 years. He went half mad in jail and died there of TB in 1878. From then on, the um predominated in attempts to revive the union. Pavel Axelrod, one of the future consistent Marxists, was still a semlia of older Bakuninists, but already working-class oriented and heavily influenced by the workers' movements in the West. He desired, as he put it, to, quote, let the voice of the working class be heard, end quotes. He had been working in Kiev since 1872, and there in 1879 he started the Workers' Union of Southern South Russia, deliberately reviving the name of the Odessa Organization of 1875. The union soon disintegrated when Axelrod, who after the June 1879 split in Zemlya Ivolya, was now with Plekhanov in black redistribution, went to St. Petersburg. In terms of the history of the Russian working class movement, it was, however, very important. Its programme was an eclectic hybrid of Bakuninist and Western social democratic approaches. Axelrod was in transition to Western, West European style social democratic politics in which the proletariat, not as in populist socialism, the peasantry, was central. The union's goal was to be an anarchist, stateless society, but it advocated immediate democratic freedom in Russia. It advocated palliatives and reforms, such as the reduction of hours of work. It had variants of the minimum-maximum program, split between short-term reform objectives and longer-term aims, such as was typical of the Western Social Democrats at the time, with an anarchist rather than a Marxian social socialist maximum program and individual goal. The Workers' Union was restarted in Kiev in 1880 by two young populists of a different political bent, Nikolai uh, Shredrin and Elisavata Kavalovskia, who believed in vigorous economic terrorism, the use in the towns of the South sort of violence against the exploiters and officials which Zemlya Evolya, Land and Freedom, had advocated and used in the countryside. Shedrin took uh, work in a railway centre and soon a dozen rail workers formed the nucleus of the revived organisation and it spread. The Ukrainians 
in the organization objected to recruiting Jewish workers, they killed Christ. The organizers had to fight such attitudes, and they did. The following year, an anti-Jewish pogrom was started. Moving on to page 11. Jewish um, uh, quarters were attacked, people named and killed, and women raped with the police and soldiers looking on or participating. Shedrin was already in jail, but the workers he had educated, whose anti-Semitism he confronted, put out a leaflet, urging the people to fight the exploiters and not the poor Jews. Narodnia Olya <coughs> would back the paper that started the widespread pogroms from 1881. It was a genuine popular movement of the people, wasn't it? But that was in the future. The Workers' Union had 600 members and held mass meetings in the open air and outside the town. The methods of the Union were a mix of elite terror against the exploiters, the Bakuninist Femlia Evolia policy of calls for immediate revolts and working-class mass action. The workers were still feeling their way, enshrouded still in the integument of populism and populist methods. Many of them still retained the mentality of peasants, looking for help to their little father, the Tsar. The organization was strong in their Kiev arsenal, but they fought there not by mass working class action, but by publishing a manifesto threatening the director of the arsenal with death if he did not give the workers what they wanted. He did it as he was told. The working day was reduced by two hours. The union saw it as a central task to create for the workers their own fighting organisation, that is, an organisation of wage terrorist guerrilla war as a weapon of the working class struggle against exploitation. Theirs was working class terrorism. Venturi quotes Axelrod's memoirs to the effect that Narodnia Volia, the people's will, the majority of Semlia, Volia after the 1879 split, the minority in which became Plekhanov's group, with its concentration on killing the Tsar and on winning the support of the upper layers of society, objected to this economic terrorism against the capitalists because it would alienate the bourgeoisie when they sought its support and money. This Narodnia Volia was the organisation that would become defined by its nationality, short-term and tactical aims shared with the Liberals of seeking for a constitution. Jail. By late 1880s, the leaders of the Southern Workers' Union were in jail. uh, Shedrin paid for his brief activity with a sentence of death commuted by the Tsar to hard labour for life. He continued to fight in jail and was again sentenced to death with striking an army officer. Again the sentence was commuted. He went mad and spent the rest of his life in an insane asylum, dying there in 1919. Elisaveta Kowalskaya eventually escaped from jail. The work of building the Russian labour movement did not come cheap in human cost. Up to the revolution, the typical career of those who built the movement would be to spend a few months or a year at liberty working underground and then 
to spend years in jail or Siberian exile. The road to the October Revolution would be paved with the bones and skulls of many thousands of such people. As, as Trotsky recounted, even in a later period, quotes, the movement was as yet utterly devoid of careerism, living on its uh, faith in the future and on its spirit of self-sacrifice. There was as yet no routine, no set formula, no theatrical gestures, no ready-making oratorical tricks. Whoever joined an organization knew that uh, prison followed by exile awaited him within the next few months. The measure of ambition was to last as long as possible on the job prior to arrest, to hold oneself steadfast when facing the gendarmes, to ease as far as possible the plight of one's comrades, to read while in prison as many books as possible, to escape as soon as possible from exile abroad, to um, acquire wisdom there, and then to return to revolutionary activity in Russia. Page 12. Starmer to blame for Rochdale fiasco by Rodri Evans. Keir Starmer's running of the Labour Party is to blame for the fiasco of the Rochdale by-election on 29th of February. Labour has disavowed its candidates as a Ali. It is too near to polling day on 29th of February to run another candidate or even to remove Ali's Labour designation from the ballot papers. The reactionary demagogue George Galloway now has had a good chance and maybe even the far-right Reform Party's candidate Simon Danksuk, a former right-wing MP who was sacked by Labour after harassing a 12, 17-year-old woman. The Tories got 31% in 2019. A local Labour activist told us that his guess is that Rochdale Labour people will most probably shrug and turn their efforts to campaigning for the council elections in May. All does not live. Ellie does not live in Ratchdale and has no real local base. The Green Party candidate has withdrawn his candidacy, though he will still be on the ballot paper because of anti-Muslim social media posts he now regrets. Ellie told a Labour Party meeting. Lancashire, not Rochdale, and before he was selected as candidate, that the 7th of October Hamas pogrom was deliberately set up by Israel in order to license an attack on Gaza. Although Ali had been in Muslims Against Antisemitism, that was a blatant reprise of old anti-Semitic claims that Jews are the hidden hands behind all evils and they bring their misfortunes on themselves. Ever since 2020, the Starmer leadership, under cover of quashing anti-Semitism, has been suppressing discussion and education on the issue. Probably even in the shriveled Starmer Labour Party, there were people in the meeting who saw what was wrong, but they preferred to keep quiet to avoid a risk of trouble for themselves and presumably to hope it wouldn't come out. Then someone leaked the story to the mail on Sunday. The Labour leaders at first equivocated, though left-wingers like Andy MacDonald have been instantly suspended for alleged anti-Semitism, which was really just vapoured blather, then disavowed Ali. If there are, if there were a culture of discussion and education 
in the Labour Party, it wouldn't have happened. It might have not happened if Labour leaders had allowed a wider choice of candidates, allowing more critical and leftish nominees into onto the shortlist, instead of limiting it to three right-wingers. The nearest thing to a left-wing option on 29th February is a retired vicar, Mark Coleman, standing as an independent with just-top oil support. Coleman had previously stood for the Greens and tells voters his wife was her Labour councillor. But Coleman won't stop Galloway or uh, Danksook and he's not specifically, he's not especially uh, left-wing. Jewish students protest at Miller by Zach Muddle. Around 50 Jewish students protested against anti-Semitic hatred in Bristol on Sunday 11th of February. David Miller and Loki headlines a panel organised by Bristol Palestine Alliance, whose members include Bristol Stop the War, Bristol Palestine Solidarity Campaign and Bristol Muslim Community. The talk's purpose included largely denying the existence of anti-Semitism and demonising those who call it out. British Bristol University Jewish Society, JSOC, organised their protest outside the panel, specifically against Miller, though with limited publicity in advance. Their placards denounced Miller's anti-Semitic remarks that, quote, Jews are not discriminated against, they actually discriminate against marginalised groups, end quote. That's Jewish students are pawns of Israel, that, quote, even uh, chicken soup is a Zionist plot, as Jewish Muslim interfaith work is a Trojan horse for normalising Zionism, end quotes, and more. Abuse. G- G- JCOC's former president said, quotes, while making our message very clear that we are standing up against racism against Jews, we are we were disappointed that people attending the talk were shouting words of abuse at us and demanding that the Jewish students present at the protest answer for Israel's actions in the war. We were not there representing Israel. We were simply there because David Miller has repeatedly expressed opinions riddled with anti-Semitic tropes, end quotes. While opinion in the JSOC surely vary, um, many are critical of Israel's actions in the war. In late November, the society hosted a speaker from Standing Together, the main pro-ceasefire movement in Israel. Allegations that their criticism of Miller is about defending Israel's actions betray another type of anti-Semitism. Massacre, two-week a term, letter by Martin Thomas. Ben Taus, Solidarity 698, criticises the editorial of Solidarity 696 for saying that, quote, there are, are good reasons to be wary about insisting uh, Israel's war represents a genocide, end quote. He takes those measure, measured words as uh, inveighing so heavily against the genocide label. Our coverage since October 2023 has denounced what we've called catastrophe, massacre, slaughter of c- civilians in Gaza, Israel's new targeting policies, licensing attacks 
likely to kill many civilians for the sake of a possible few Hamas fighter casualties, the destruction of ordinary civic life in Gaza, risking mass deaths through hunger and disease, the exterminationist rhetoric of far-right Israeli government ministers, and Netanyahu's efforts to keep them on board so as to sustain himself in office. These use strong and emotive words. The editorial quotes Omar Bartov, who is very measured about his reluctance to use the label genocide. Why does Ben think the word's too weak and it weighs so heavily for his preferred term, genocide? Assimilation. His references to Chinese government's abuse of the Uyghurs and uh, Putin's announced drive to raise Ukraine as a distinct nation and reconstitute it as just part of Russia are irrelevant. Genocide there means forced assimilation and destruction of distinct identity. Whatever the misdeeds of Israel attempts to forcibly Judaize Palestinian Arabs are not among them. Ben must mean genocide in the other and more common sense, a drive to wipe out a whole people, or that part of a people within the parts within the range of fire. Horrific massacres may not be exactly genocides. The editorial referred to the atom bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, which kills 100,000 to 200,000, and directly to intimidate Japan, not as collateral, while aiming at military targets. The US war in Vietnam kills about 200,000 people a year at its peak, maybe 2 million civilian deaths in all, thanks to bombing with little concern for civilian casualties. Israel's war in Gaza is more like the US in Vietnam on a smaller scale than the Armenian genocide of 1915 or the Tutsi genocide in 1994. On one level, it is macabre pedantry to make much of massacre not being genocide in the strict sense. Though repeatedly criticising other messages on the Gaza protests, we made no specific polemic, special polemic about the genocide term until Solidarity 696. But it is not true that it is not true here that a bit of emotive imposition does no harm. Not true that the cost of imposition can be outweighed by the benefit of being with the flow of the sloganizing about genocide on those protests. The term genocide has been used there from the very start, and indeed on anti-Israel protests for many years. It denotes not a search for precision, but rather the thoughts that what the USA does, or Russia in Afghanistan, or is mere massacre, but what Israel does in this or in fact any war is something else again. This is not innocent searching for the strongest words to protest against killing. It comes from the same flow of thought as uh, Nazis, same sort of thing, uh, uh, Zionists, <laughs> same sort of thing as Nazis. Page 13. David Miller's World. Zionist Spies Operate Everywhere by Dale Street. David Miller, a former professor of political sociology at Bristol University, whose recent 
Employment Tribunal has brought much comments, believes that Zionism is more powerful than any state in the world, quotes, the sovereignty of every nation in the world is undermined by the Zionist movement's activities, end quotes. The Zionist movement, he claims, is seeking world domination, quotes, the enemy we face is trying to impose its will all over the world, end quotes. There is an ongoing, quotes, attempt by the Israelis to impose their will all over the world, and that's what we should recognize, end quotes. Miller jumps back and forth between references to the Zionist movement, the Israel lobby, and the state of Israel itself. In his eyes, they're all the same thing. Like the rest of the world, Britain is a target of the Zionist movement. Quotes, there have been long, long, uh, there has been a long, long history of Zionist attempts to penetrate this country and to take on and colonize um, parts of the power structure of this country. End quotes. <coughs> Britain is, quotes, in the grip of an assault on its public sphere by the State of Israel and its advocates. End quotes. The assault has been successful. Quotes, an extraordinary Zionist tr- stranglehold now exists at the top of industries and government organizations and over the top of the music industry, end quotes. There are, quotes, Zionists, um, entryists and spies at senior level levels in every major British institution, end quotes. The Zionist strangleholds has made proper discussions of anti-Semitism, uh, of anti-racism impossible. Quotes, meaningful conversations about anti-black racism and Islamophobia have been drowned out by a concerted lobbying campaign targeting universities, political parties and the equalities regulator and public institutions all over the country. End quotes. This concerted lobbying campaign is run by Israel. Quotes, to be clear, this campaign of censorship, which has attacked British universities, political parties, and public institutions, is directed by the State of Israel. End quotes. Israel has also played an influential role in determining the outcome of recent British elections. It has, quotes, tried to dictate the outcome of the past two general elections, 2017 and 2019, and by any yardstick succeeded to a great extent, end quotes. The Zionist movement's influence, quotes, was one of the key reasons why Corbyn was sunk. There was such a lack of understanding of Zionism, of the Zionist movement, of the Israel lobby, which goes along with that, end quotes. With Corbyn out the way, <coughs> the uh, Zionist movement has now been able to reassert a controlling influence in the Labour Party. Quotes, we are not going to get a proper investigation into the leaked Labour Party report by Starmer or Nandi, who have been in receipt of money from the Zionist movement from Trevor Chin. <coughs> a significant element of support for Starmer has come from the Zionist movement. End quotes. Miller discovers the corrosive impact of the Zionist movement even in the East London Mosque. Quotes, Israel has sent people in to target that interfaith work 
is a Trojan horse for normalizing Zionism in the Muslim community. For example, the East London Mosque unknowingly held a project of making chicken soup with Jewish and Muslim communities uh, coming together, end quotes. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides training and security for Jewish community organizations, is another front for Israel for the, or the Zionist movements. Quite, quotes, the CST exists to run point to run points for a uh, hostile um, foreign government in the UK. It should be under investigation for its lies with the State of Israel. This is a straightforward story of influence peddling by a foreign state. End quotes. Enemy. <coughs> According to Miller, quotes, the Zionist movement and the Israeli government are the enemy of the left, the enemy of world peace, and they must be directly targeted. Zionism has no place in any society. The solution is every single Zionist organization the world over needs to be ended, every single one. End quotes. Miller believes that he himself has been targeted by the Zionist movement as part of its drive to take over British universities. Quotes, With the rising popularity and effectiveness of the anti-Semitism smear after the Labour Party's capitulation to the tactic, Israel's apologists have been emboldened to intensify the use of it on university campuses. Their campaign of subversion on British campuses is on behalf of a violent foreign regime. University Jewish societies, JSOCs, are the means through which the broader Zionist movement promotes this campaign of subversion. Quotes, the GSOCs are all part of the Union of Jewish Students and the UJS is a member of the World Union of Late Jewish Students, which is a direct member of the World Zionist Organization. End quotes. JSOC members campaign to, quotes, silence critics of Zionism or the state of Israel on, on British campuses. End quotes. They are the pawns of a foreign power. Quotes, there is a real question of abuse here of uh, Jewish students on British campuses being used as a political pawns by a violent, racist foreign regime engaged in ethnic cleansing. Um, end quotes. The JSOC in Miller's own former workplace was part of the Zionist campaign of subversion. Quotes, Bristol's JSOC, like all JSOCs, operates under the auspices of the Union of Jewish Students, UJS, an Israel lobby group. The UJS and British and Bristol JSOC have consistently attacked me with a campaign of manufacturing hysteria for two years, attempting to have me sacked, end quotes. Complaints about Miller lodged by JSOC members were part of Quotes, an all-out uh, onslaught by the Israeli government on the left globally, end quotes. They, they were examples of, quotes, the significant number of fraudulent anti-Semitism complaints which have been all too common in the febrile atmosphere encouraged by supporters of the Israeli state, end quotes. 
The purpose of their complaints was, quote, to give cover to Zionists, activists, allowing them to present themselves as part of a benighted ethnic minority facing racism. That's the point of the anti-Semitism smear tactic, not just an incidental consequence, end quotes. In any case, claims Miller in an anti-Semitic tweet, which he posted last August, anti-Semitism no longer really exists today. Accusations of anti-Semitism must therefore be bogus. Quotes, the, uh, the facts, sick, one, Jews are not discriminated against. Two, they are overrepresented in Europe, North America and Latin America in positions of cultural, economic and political power. Three, they are therefore in a position to discriminate against actually marginalized groups, end quotes. That tweet cost Miller a lot of support. Um, individuals and organizations which had previously brought into his claims that he was the heroic victim of a Zionist witch hunt objected. Quotes, this is straightforward anti-Semitism, in quotes, wrote Owen Jones. Quotes, seems like uh, David Miller has ousted himself as an anti-Semite, uh, wrote Michael Rosen. End quotes. The, Jew, the Judas organization asked, quotes, perhaps the Jews who are overrepresented over in mathematics could calculate the ideal representation of Jews in positions of culture, cultural, political, and economic power. End quotes. Miller's claims of a Zionist Israel conspiracy to take over the world are 24 carats 21st century anti Semitism. His claims are a revamped version of the word world Jewish conspiracy promoted by the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the Nazis. Although Miller talks of Zionists rather than Jews, the actors in his imaginary conspiracy are all Jewish. The Jewish uh, national state, Jewish organizations and Jewish individuals. Miller endows them with the attributes of Jews in, in, a, in more traditional anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. They penetrate power structures. They run campaigns of subversion. They are unpatriotic cosmopolitans. They take orders from a foreign power. They bring down political leaders. They dictate the outcome of elections. They are all powerful and they use bogus allegations of anti-Semitism to silence their opponents. Miller equates Zionism with support, have a critical for or empathy with Israel, but well over 90% of Jews see the existence of Israel as part of their identity. By Miller's logic, therefore, most Jews in the world should be directly targeted. Because, um, quote, Zionism has no place in society, in quotes, Miller advocates an, quote, ends to every single Zionist organization the world over, in quotes. In practice, this would mean not just the physical destruction of Israel, but also the elimination of virtually all Jewish communal organizations on planet Earth. Miller's global Zionist conspiracy to achieve world domination is simply an invention of his anti-Semitic imagination. Commenting on an elaborate diagram from Miller of the supposed Zionist penetration of British power structures, David Rich, author of Everyday Hate, has written, quotes, 
This map is a meaningless mass of names and errors with no real academic or analytic value. By the time uh, Millis taught it to students in 2019, most of the students' names on the map had either left their posts or died. The picture of a transnational Jewish or Zionist network using finance and lobbying to subvert public life that Miller paints echoes certain facets of anti-Semitic conspiracism, end quotes. Since his, his dismissal by Bristol University, Miller has found a new platform for his anti-Semitic conspiracy mongering. He now makes regular appearances with XMP Chris Williamson on Iran Press TV's Palestine Declassified program, correctly described by Jewish News as, quotes, a playbook of for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and a horrific show in which every episode contains anti-Semitic conspiracy theories from first to last, end quotes. Iran is a state in which anti-Semitism has been raised to the level of an official government's dogma. Miller would feel at home there. I'll discuss the employment tribunal in a second article. Page 14. (coughs) Minimum is 100% Diary of a Firefighter by Adrian Noble. Sometimes the clarion calls in the most inauspicious of places. Little did I know when I was, when I crossed the threshold into Cadbury World, already eyeing up the torso-sized bags of misshapen chocolates rejects in the shop, that the um, glorious transcendo, crescendo of a midweek Birmingham trip was to be derailed. As I got the phone out to find the target, the tickets bought from a janky third-party website. I see that the government has published um, the minimum service level regulations for fire services. The level has been set at 73% of fire engines being on the run on strike days. This is utterly farcical. Because of over a decade of austerity and the loss of 20% of firefighter posts, that's not far off what we can scrabble together to crew on any given day. 39 fire engines were sitting empty at stations on Britain's hottest ever day in July 2022. We're talking 85 to 100% of the workforce being told to cross their picket lines on pain of dismissal. Of course, it's what we expected, but it doesn't make me any less raging. It's in these hallowed hells among armies of sugar adults, children and the work experienced kids dressed in a curly-whirly costume that I crouch over my phone like a goblin and read the document and FBU response and start firing messages off to my station and union branch WhatsApps. I feel a burning desire to organise and make the arguments to my colleagues but there's little I can do from the West Midlands factory village of Bourneville. I'm going around the Cadbury version of Disney's It's a Small World ride, fuming about widespread trade union quietism on the laws, photo on request. A fellow rep insists that if um, the, the bill ever becomes law, 
Law, Labour will repeat, repeal it, no problem. I scream internally as I pile fudge pieces into my chocolate moulds at the do-it-yourself station. I can hardly focus on the not-so-subtly racist presentation of the journey of the cocoa bean through European imperialism as I lament Met Rex's failure to repeat his call to defy the legislation. The futility of too much back and forth online is clear, so after a couple of messages making the case for organised and collective non-compliance across the labour movement, I smash a few freddos. Happily, when I'm back in at work, the first few people I speak to about it are clear that they won't be crossing picket lines and they expect the same from everyone else. The challenge will be to mobilise people to actively campaign now and discuss now so we can put pressure on Labour to hold them to the world and to make sure we are ready if the time comes. Days of Heaven, Kino Eye by John Cunningham Days of Heaven, 1978, was Terence Malick's second film as director. Bill, Richard Gere, is a steelworker in Chicago who kills his boss unintentionally in a fight, along with his lover, Abby Brooke Adams, and his younger young sister, Linda, he flees to Texas, where they become seasonal workers on a large farm. To avoid complications, Bill and Abby pose as siblings. Bill overhears a conversation where it is said the farmer has only a year to live. He persuades Abby to pretend to fall in love with the farmer and marry him. She will then inherit the farm when he dies. A neat scheme, but the farmer doesn't die and becomes increasingly suspicious of Bill. After a swarm of locusts destroys his crop, the farmer and Bill uh, confront each other. Bill kills him, but as he tries to escape, the police shoot him. Abby inherits the farm, but unsurprisingly, nothing works out as planned. The film is notable for its superb cinematography by Nestor Almendros. One scene is particularly memorable. The locusts swarm is actually a shower of thousands of peanut shells dropped by a helicopter. The actors walk backwards and the film is then played in reverse following the, showing the locusts' peanut shells rising from the fields. Page 15. Food Couriers Strike, 14th of February by Michael Elms. On 14th of February, food delivery couriers are set to strike over pay. The strike is not being organised by a union, but by a social media-based group called Delivery Job UK, and it mostly involves couriers working for Deliveroo and Stuart. Some couriers working for other apps are also involved. The strike also took place on 2nd of February. The 2nd of February action saw thousands of couriers, mostly in London, but also in cities across the UK, stopping deliveries. The delivery apps tried to, to break the strike by offering astronomical fees to those riders who did accept orders. Patchy picketing and protest motorcades uh, around the strike hotspots were able to reduce the impact of scabbing and shore up the strike. The riders are right to strike. Pay for food couriers has been falling since the pandemic. Pay is opaque. An algorithmic 
algorithm decides the rate for each job with little or no explanation given. Many couriers work brutally long weeks just to cover their costs and make something like minimum wage on top. 50-hour weeks are not uncommon, and many work even longer hours than that. Delivery Job UK appears to be the creation of a group of mostly Brazilian couriers working in the UK. They built up a large following among other couriers on social media and, uh, and over WhatsApp. The internal workings of the group are not clear. Evidently, a group of riders who set themselves up as leadership for a large section of the delivery workforce. Good for them. But the leadership of the strikes needs to join up with the broader trade union movement by engaging with the WGB union, which is the main trade union organising queries in the UK currently. The um, IWGB likewise needs to activate itself in order to meet the demands of the hour. There is a pattern in courier organising in the UK that friendship groups of well-known riders create a kind of executive committee in a given area and organise a strike when pay is particularly bad. But these networks often lack experience in organising strikes and they are generally disconnected from the wider socialist and workers' movements. For these reasons, spontaneous careers strikes tend to fall apart quickly. The opacity and lack of formal democracy in the leading friendship group often makes it hard to turn over new leaders when the initial organisers burn out and move on. What is happening now appears to be a bigger, more serious version of this long-standing pattern, with all its problems as well as its strengths. A widespread belief among some couriers that trade unions are scams, often connected to migrant workers' experiences of corrupt labour organisations in other countries, sometimes to do with the experience of unions in Britain, does not help. Socialists around the UK, not just staff or members of the IWGB, need to connect with this round of couriers' strikes and offer our assistance and our organising experience to help couriers form a strong, durable organisation that can win. Junior Doctors Strike, 24th to 28th of February, <coughs> by Sasha Ishmael. British Medical Association Junior Doctors in England fighting for pay restoration, a real terms wage rise this year, and a clear plan to restore their pay to the real terms level of 2008, will strike again for five days this month, from the morning of Saturday the 24th of February to Wednesday the 28th of February. Other trade unionists, activists and everyone who supports workers' rights and the NHS should join their picket lines and demonstrations and push for active solidarity from our unions and organisations. When their current legal mandate for strikes under the anti-trade union laws expires at the end of the month, junior doctors will have struck for 39 days over the last year. The BMA is currently reballoting for a new mandate from April to September, with the vote running to 15th of March. This time the ballot is for action short of a strike, ASOS, as as well strikes. Our junior doctors' leaders are emphasising that ASOS 
is not impacted by the new minimum service levels anti-strike law. In their official communication about ASOS, the the BMA junior doctors co-chairs say, quote, to be clear, this does not mean we won't be calling for full walkouts um, anymore. However, ASOS is something we can use to our advantage, in quotes. They add, quotes, attempts to restrict our rights to strike are pointless. If if they want to end this dispute, a credible offer is still the only thing that will work, in quotes. In December, new Tory Health Secretary Victoria Atkin indicated increased willingness to consider new offer to the junior doctors, but the government has made no offer and evaded the BMA's proposals for fresh talks while engaging in nebulous rhetoric about addressing issues other than pay. Junior doctors' struggles show no sign of petering out. Junior doctors in Northern Ireland and Wales are entering the fight, with strikes coming up. In England, too, BMA activists indicate morale and willingness to fight remain high. The wider labour movement must help make the dispute a crisis for the government. A concerted campaign to demand labour supports the junior doctors and commits to meeting their demands remains necessary. The UK party leadership, desperate to avoid committing to substantially more money for public services, has tried to ignore the dispute. Meanwhile, the Welsh Labour government has made junior doctors their the worst pay offer in the UK. Junior doctors in Wales are planning a three-day strike from 21st February and a four-day strike from the 25th of March. Amazon strikes again again at BHX4 by Oli Moore. Workers at Amazon's BHX4 facilities in Coventry will strike again on 13th to 15th of February. Their campaign of strikes to win a £15 an hour minimum wage has seen them take over 30 days of action. The GMB's union membership at the warehouse now stands at over 1,000. The strikes come after union members recently voted to renew their industrial action mandate for a further six months. Amazon has upped its anti-union efforts, distributing leaflets within the workplace, saying the GMB wants to speak for workers, whereas Amazon wants to speak to them. You don't, quotes, you don't have to join a union to have your voice heard. We've got you, end quotes. GMB is also fighting for collective bargaining rights. Amazon sabotaged a previous claim for union recognition by artificially inflating the size of the workforce in order to reduce the unionized proportion back below 50%. The maneuver entails making hundreds of previously temporary roles permanent. GMB says it has recruited considerable numbers of the new staff. January 2024 saw strikes spread to sites beyond BAHX4 for only the second time in the campaign when the workers at a site in Sutton Coldfields in Birmingham took action. Building a base and taking action in Amazon warehouses elsewhere remains the most likely path to force serious concessions from the company. Page 16. <coughs> Ukraine on the back foot by Dan Katz. On 8th of February, 
President's Volodymyr Zelensky, the sacked armed forces, uh, armed forces com- commander Valery Kalazunir. Although Zelensky and uh, Zelazunir have had disputes on battlefield tactics, the sacking is essentially a destructive political move by Zelensky to remove a potential political rival. Zelensky's removal will have an impact on the morale of Ukrainian troops. Zelensky is very popular among amongst the army's rank and file. Zelensky is concerned that opinion polls conducted at the end of last year show showed that the only potential candidate who might defeat him in the future presidential election was Zelensky. Zelensky oversaw important startling defeats of the Russian invasion forces north of Kiev in April 2022, in Kharkiv in September and in November 2022 when Kherson city was liberated. Zelensky and Zelensky had disagreed apparently over the battle for Bakhmut, an industrial town in eastern Ukraine, which finally fell to the Russians in May 2023 at tremendous cost. Zelensky wanted Bakhmut to defend resolutely. Zelensky thought that the cost of the Ukrainian army was too great to defend a small, um, destroyed town of little military significance. The battle for Bakhmut was extraordinarily brutal. Russia, using uh, Wagner mercenaries and convicts alongside regular forces, lost 35 to 40,000 killed and 95,000 wounded. Ukraine's losses were far smaller with perhaps 7,000 dead and 15,000 injured. The fight for Bakhmut was the bloodiest so far in the war and the fatality numbers are comparable to major battles in World War II. The US lost 19,000 troops in the Battle of the Bulge and 7,000 at Godel Canal. Zelensky also demanded a new draft into the army of 500,000 troops. Zelensky opposed a draft on such a scale as something that would be too politically damaging to carry out. Zelensky's replacement, Alexander Siriski, was the general in charge of Ukraine's ground forces. Siriski is clearly competent. However, Zelensky believed Sirisky is personally loyal to him and has no interest in opposing him in politics. Sirisky also agreed with Zelensky over the um, defence of Bakhmut. However, consequently, Sirisky has a reputation in the army for not being concerned enough for his troops' lives. Ukraine is now on the defensive rights across the east, eastern front and seems to seems about to lose the town of Edzevka, which sits in a pocket of Ukraine-held territory just north of Donetsk city. Evdivka 
is now in ruins and Russian attacks from north and south have gradually threatened Ukraine's supply routes. Ukraine is running short of air defence missiles which have left cities poorly protected and have given Russian Russia freedom to bomb Ukraine Ukrainian front lines. Russia fires 10 artillery shells for every one um, Ukraine shoots back. The shortages have been caused by far-right Trump supporters in the US Congress who have filibustered and obstructed arms and aid to Ukraine. Although there are now signs that US money and resources will be freed up and sent to Ukraine right now, Ukraine is suffering serious shortages. Although the IF uh, the IMF expects uh, 3% growth in Ukraine's GDP this year, following 5% in 2023. GDP is 25% lower now than before the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2024. Although the IMF expects 3% growth of... Uh, 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 no, sorry. Although inflation is now down to 5%, the country has 20% unemployment alongside shortages of skilled workers in many fields. 8 million people have left Ukraine over the last two years. 100,000 have been drafted into the police, 700,000 into the army and 90,000 into the border force Russia has occupied. 15% of the country, including significant industrial and agricultural areas. All these factors have impacted on the economy. Although Ukraine has effectively hit the Russian Black Sea fleet and created space to resume grain exports by, by ship, police farmers continue to blockade border crossings, complaining of cheap Ukrainian agricultural exports. <coughs> North Ireland, new strikes set for 27th to the 29th of February. Michael McKeon, Following North and Ireland's huge public sector strike on 18th of January over pay, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions has said that, quote, industrial action will continue until an offer is made that workers can accept, end quotes. Pay awards for public sector workers have not been made since the Democratic Unionist Party, DUP, collapsed the devolved government in October 2022 in protest against post-Brexit trading arrangements. The Northern Ireland's NI Assembly and Executive were restored on 3rd of February, with public sector pave placed high on the agenda of incoming ministers. ICTU's comments came after a meeting last Monday, 5th of February, between ICTU Assistant General Secretary Jerry Murphy and the new Stormont's Finance Minister Sinn Féin's, um, uh, Sinn Féin's Kaomi uh, Archibald. Ahead of the first meeting of the newly formed executive, <coughs> according to ICTU, quotes, the minister made clear to us that public sector pay was an immediate priority for her and her department. We welcome the minister's commitment to settle these disputes as quickly and comprehensively as possible, end quotes. Transport workers who struck again on Thursday, 1st of February, so they will now postpone a further strike planned for 15th of February. In a joint statement, GMB United's SIPTU 
said that the action previously planned for 15th of February would be put back two weeks to give time for the new Sinn Féin Infrastructure Minister, John O'Dowd, to move quickly and offer workers' pay a pay increase. Um, if a realistic offer is not made, the three unions have announced action by bus and all uh, rail workers for 72 hours on a, quote, a staggered basis after midnight of on February 27 to after midnight, February 29, end quotes. The UK government's £3.3 billion um, package to tempt the DUP, including £584 million to settle the wage dispute, is a one-off, is, uh, is tied to revenue-raising measures, charges for services, and will not stop issues recurring in future years. Last month, the head of the NI Civil Service, um, Jane Brady, said that an estimated uh, £634 million was needed to maintain broad parity between civil servants in the North and those in England, Scotland and Wales, the figure higher than the £584 million promised by the UK government. Indeed, the political economy of the North um, cautions against any optimism about the restoration of Stormonts, that the restoration of Stormonts will provide a lasting solution to win to the crises of public services. While Stormonts controls almost 90% of the budget for public services, it raises less than £1 in every £20 of um, NI tax revenue. Limited. Limited tax powers are open to the Scottish and Welsh governments, but the NI executive can only really vary rates on businesses and households or introduce punitive direct charges on service users for water prescriptions or tuition fees. It is, therefore, in a physically, physically subordinate position to the Tories at Westminster, which in its recent decision to amend devolved funding arrangements has admitted to systematically underfunding the North for over a decade. On 6th of February, the Stormont parties, admitting this, united on a motion called calling on the UK to give the North the resources that it needs to deliver effective public services. At the same time, the domestic economy of the North is reliant on public sector wages, especially in health and education, the two biggest spending departments with 51% and 18% of overall public spending respectively. Workers in the North should unite across communities with workers in the South on the basis of a mutual and democratic arrangement and break the connection with Westminster. In doing so, they will then find, in James Connolly's words, that, quote, the causes of poverty, of lack of progress, of arrested civic and national development are then to be sought for within and not without, are in their power to move or perpetuate, end quote. Page 17. Stop Massacre in Rafah by Eira Berkovic. The Israeli government plans an assault on Rafah, 
a city in southern Gaza on the Egyptian border that could kill tens of thousands of civilians or even more. Strikes on the city took place overnight on Sunday the 11th of February with 52 Palestinians reported killed. Israeli raids succeeded in rescuing two hostages, Fernando Simon Marman and Louis Ha. The rescue of two hostages is of course an immense relief for the men themselves and their friends and families. The best way to ensure the safe return of the remaining people held in Hamas captivity is a ceasefire agreement which includes the return of all of them in in return for uh, releasing Palestinian prisoners, not massive assaults on the areas where hostages are held, which risks hostages' lives as much as those of Palestinian residents. Around half of Gaza's total population is now crammed into Rafah, having been displaced from other parts of the enclave, in some cases um, multiple times, by Israeli bombing and ground offensives. Conditions of life are abject, with many people living in tents. Israeli uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says an evacuation plan is being prepared, but has given no details of where over one million people are supposed to evacuate to, beyond a vague reference to areas that, um, quotes, Israel has cleared north of Rafah, end quotes. Netanyahu said Israeli forces will provide safe passage, but its conduct of the war so far, including the raising of other cities such as uh, Khan Yunus and Gaza City with high civilian death tolls, inspires no confidence. Ongoing fighting between the Israeli Defense Force and Hamas cells in Khan Yunus and Gaza City shows that even in cities where Israel has wrought untold devastation, Hamas has not been destroyed or dismantled. Evacuation. In any case, the commencement of strikes on 11th of February without any indication of an evacuation operation makes Netanyahu's words ring hollow. Given the damage Israel's war has caused to infrastructure in Gaza, there is nowhere left for refugees to go. In such circumstances, an offensive on Rafah can only be murderously destructive. The Israeli government knows that extreme numbers of civilian casualties are inevitable. The US and UK governments have both warned against the assault. Netanyahu's insistence uh, that will go ahead reflects um, Israel's isolation from and defiance of um, even its staunched allies. Having set itself an unachievable war aim, the total destruction of Hamas, Israel's um, war has been a self-perpetuating logic. Because Hamas cannot be destroyed and because Israel's actions will help it win new recruits, Israel's war must continue indefinitely. Netanyahu also knows that his own political future relies on extending the war. Opinion polls in Israel shows that he would lose heavily in any post-war election. 
Palestinian lives are therefore being sacrificed to preserve the political career of a corrupt um, would-be despot. Many Palestinians already see Israeli's war as a second Nakba, a mass displacement of people from their homes. The failure on all sides to offer livable outcomes for the Palestinian refugees in the immediate aftermath of 1947-49 has created a deep wound in Palestinian national consciousness. The population displaced by this new year must be allowed to return to and rebuild their homes at the earliest possible opportunity, and big power governments must give substantial aid to UN agencies for a human humanitarian effort to reconstruct civilian life in Gaza. The burgeoning anti-war movement in Israel, which on 18th of January put thousands of demonstrations, both Arab and Jewish, on the streets of Tel Aviv, will do its best to increase domestic pressure on Netanyahu to build back to pull back. It needs our support.